Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we discuss updates from across the battlefront and look in detail at yachts, sanctions, and Russian oligarchs. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 6th of May, day 72. Today I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols and business reporter Ben Garside. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front line. Hi David, hi everybody. It's been continued attacks uh, seen in, in Mariupol, Russia, very very clear they want to take the whole of the Azovstal plant. Um, US officials are saying that they, they think there are two battalion tactical groups left in Mariupol. So it's mostly being done, as we see, by indirect fire, artillery, rockets and, and, uh, and what have you. I think Russia have shown themselves to be extremely reluctant, as, as is probably correct, to try and go into the, into the plant. That would be a a very, very tough nut to crack. They would lose a lot of people. It would take an awful lot of time. So I think they're just trying to pound it into submission. Let's not forget, of course, there are still dozens of civilians in the plant and uh, hundreds, thousands um, outside in the city itself. But Mariupol is still very much the focus of attention. Now, whether or not that's that's something to do with May the 9th and the, the Victory Day Parade, we're not entirely sure. There have been efforts in, in uh, wider Mariupol, Russian efforts to clean up the city, uh, to clean clean the streets, although the the backdrop of of smashed and burnt, destroyed buildings does somewhat give the uh, give the light a nice nice clean curbstones, but um, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said yesterday or last night said that the the Russian progress uh, in the Donbass more widely has been uneven and behind schedule, and that there's no specific correlation between Russia's tactics in the Donbass and the May the ninth parade. So, as we've seen in recent days, Russia has said. No, no, they're not trying to get some some massive victory ahead of May the 9th. That's probably because they can't. Um, and it's also a response to Western media, ourselves included, saying that it was likely that, that Putin would try and use the event to uh, to either rally the troops or broaden the, broaden the war. But it does look like there's not um, there's not a massive effort to try and do anything uh, in the in the Donbass. They've not been achieving the, uh, the success that they they enjoyed in the south in the early weeks of the war, um, and they are still under extreme pressure around Kharkiv. Heavy, very heavy fighting uh, around Kharkiv, particularly to the north and the and the east, where Russian lines are under uh, very great pressure. Uh, I'll just pause there. Thanks, Dom. Uh, 
Dom, your colleague, uh, our colleague Daniel Sheridan, the political and defence correspondent, has interviewed uh, the the new uh, First Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Ben Key. Um, what did he tell the Telegraph? So this this was his his first first interview uh, since taking over as First Sea Lord. Taking over, of course, from from Tony Radikin, who who got got bumped up to be the chief of the defence staff, uh, and he was basically holding the line. I mean, it's, it's you're never going to expect fireworks out of. Uh, out of a first first interview out the blocks, it would be would be surprising if it had done anything other than than, uh, than than hold the line. But he was making the point that that, that Russia, the, the longer this war carries on, the, the weaker Russia is, not only strategically in political terms, but also just in in um, in military terms. I mean, the, the 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 navy. I'll come on to the navy a little a little bit later, but. Um, the the navy have, have so far not not been hugely involved in this, partly because Turkey has sealed the Bosphorus Strait, so only the Black Sea Fleet is is really involved in this. So the wider Russian navy is still intact, and uh, and we've heard Ben Wallace, in fact, uh, told me the other day when we were in Finland that he expects the uh, the navy to be to take a much greater role in in world affairs. Partly, probably, because it's it's all that Russia is going to have left for a little while after this, but also because it's it's a way of showing that you still have relevance on the world stage. Well, not that is the case, um, but Obenki's making the point that that the 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 Russian um, material are just being chewed up by this war, and the um, the means of supply, the means of production, in fact, are are being are heavily weakened by sanctions and the. The reliance Russia seems to have on Western components, particularly for some of the more sensitive equipments, it's just it's just drying up. So um, they are consuming an awful huge, an awful lot of a lot of their material in in this war. And Benki saying it's just it's just not not in their interest to to keep it going any longer, regardless of whatever the whatever the original aims were. It's not going to have uh, Putin's not going to have a, a military force left at the end of it if he carries on the way he's going. Thanks, Tom. Um, ben Gartside from our business desk. Um, there's a story in our in our Ukraine live blog today on how 25 million tons of grain has is stuck in Ukraine. Can you tell us what's happening there and why it matters? Sure. Um, so, just to kind of set the scene in terms of in terms of kind of Ukraine and and the wider region's role in terms of grain production, um, the region is kind of referred to as the breadbasket um, of the world due to the high amounts of kind of grain and and wheat that is produced there, and that and that kind of has an impact on on global supply. Um, to kind of give a bit of context, grain prices are already elevated via the issues that we've kind of seen via the Ukraine war this year. So in March, the kind of UN um, food arm said that prices were notably elevated. They were a little bit, little bit down in April, but they are still kind of incredibly elevated over kind of long-term trends. Now, while this in, impacts prices globally, there is a kind of very specific going to be very specific issues caused in the Middle East and North Africa, which is where a lot of Ukrainian grain is exported to. Um, and that this is part of the wider inflationary pressure that's being caused by the conflict. Um, this also has a lot of indirect effects. So if you're eating kind of grain, you will either eat it directly via things like bread, or you'll actually eat it indirectly via things like livestock, because if you're rearing livestock, you're more likely to use grain. Um, is as part of that process, and that means that the costs of costs of rearing also increase. So while you've got the immediate impact on kind of bread and wheat, um, you're going to see a much wider impact in kind of potentially long term within kind of livestock rearing. And you've also got kind of the indirect approach of 
there's been reports that kind of the infrastructure of this has been hit. The UN has obviously said, kind of hinted at this um, today. And this kind of means that this is going to be a lot more extended than previous. This isn't going to kind of come and go with the immediate conflict. Um, and kind of if there is that kind of, as has been covered, this move kind of just to the to the eastern region and less of conflict across the entirety of the country in the south of it, um, the infrastructure damage caused by the war so far is still going to mean that prices are going to be elevated and there's going to be a, a shortage kind of in the global market. Um, going forward, David. If I could just jump in there, the other th- other thing to note about uh, the impact on the on the wider economy is that as Russia's offensive in the Donbass has stalled or been uneven, as the as the US are saying, what they have been doing is they they've been continuing the trend from the last sort of week or, or so of really targeting Ukrainian infrastructure um, and, and basically Ukraine's ability to to wage war in the long term. And actually, there was a, a statement by uh, Andre Jarus, a Ukrainian MP, who said that there have been 15 Ukrainian fuel depots uh, and one major refinery either destroyed or damaged in the last few days. So Russia, if they're not able to have that tactical impact against Ukrainian military forces, they're, they're really targeting the, uh, the means of production and, and Ukraine's uh, economy more broadly. Thanks, Dom. Um- one question for me, actually. So we've seen today the news that Germany is going to send seven self-propelled howitzers to Ukraine. Um, I think that'll be of interest, interest to our listeners because, of course, we, we, we've talked a lot about how the German position over the past few weeks, the past few months has shifted in regards to the war. Can you just tell us quickly, what, what is a self-propelled howitzer? How does it work and, and what, what difference might it make on the battlefield? Yeah, so when you hear the word howitzer, just think massive great gun, big artillery piece. Um, generally from uh, above sort of 155 millimeter or Ukraine and, and Russia are using 152 millimeter that's a you know, there's not an awful lot of difference in those, in those in those three mils but there's a leap from from the the British Army light gun which is 105 millimeter and that's obviously that's the that's the width of the shell so obviously the, the whole shell itself is much longer and the, and the oomph behind it is even bigger still but the, when we talk about the caliber it's the it's the width of the shell the width of the barrel if you like um, so light guns, a British 105 mil, is, is called is literally called a light gun. I mean, it's not, not not light to pick up or have roll over your toe. I can assure you, but you know, it's, it's light in terms of the the firepower it can deliver. So howitzers are, are much are sort of the ne- the next stage up. Um, like I say, sort of starting at about 155 mil, and th- there are basically two types. You've you've got um, self-propelled artillery or um, or uh, basically. Uh, towed artillery and if they're towed they're literally hooked onto the back of another vehicle and they are towed into position um, and then the gunners set up the, the work out all their the angles of firing and targets and all the rest of it and then and, and off they go self-propelled is generally on a on a hull that is a that is a tank or another another armored vehicle uh, will be a tracked vehicle rather than wheeled and so it's got much greater cross-country performance um, there's a bit of a you know, debate for for eons between wheels and tracks. Tracks are much more complex and expensive, um, but can generally go anywhere. Whereas wheels easier to uh, to produce, easier to to uh, to work on for the mechanics and engineers, but they they can't go everywhere as we see. Um, it's getting very close these days. So, so wheels with um, with variable suspension and uh, you can adjust the pressure of each tire from inside the hull are getting very close to to the cross country capability of tracks. But at the moment, track tracks still have it. So, a self propelled artillery piece 
just has the mobility it, it can go go pretty much anywhere whereas a whereas a towed gun um can can go only where the where the truck taking it can can get it to and that's just getting into action then of course nowadays with counter battery radar so a radar that looks out can see see shells coming towards it um and just work out the physics to work out where the where the firing has come from and then you can return fire and and uh, and hit those artillery pieces if you're if you are a towed howitzer you're you're static i mean you're you're sat there and it takes quite a few minutes to get out the way um and on the modern battlefield it it is it is said that you have 180 seconds so 3 minutes from firing to be to expecting uh, return fire to land in your position so if you're not able to get out of the way sharpish, you could very easily uh, be destroyed, which is where self-propelled artillery really comes into its own because it, it, is, it is the gun and the means of mobility all in one package. So it can fire, get out of the way, um, it takes a couple of minutes to, um, to set up when they're in a new location, a couple of minutes to, to, for everything to settle down and, to get, and get, bring the gun into action. But it's the, it's the getting out of the way bit that is the, uh, that is the modern killer of, of artillery pieces so some of these um the, the american howitzers the uh the triple sevens i mean they are big they're very um, hugely powerful they've got very long range and and as we said for the last few days that this battle is now trying to push back the um uh, each side is trying to push back the other's artillery so that um so that the forces underneath the tanks and infantry can't work without that overhead protection so Ukraine is trying to push back the heavy artillery of Russia uh, and then so they're then able to to uh, either Russia d- chooses not to advance or if they do the tanks and infantry are are um, subject to attack by these anti-tank teams that Ukraine have been so adept in in employing so having a heavy a heavy gun 155 mil thereabouts on a self-propelled uh, in a self-propelled um, manner so on a chassis a tank a tank chassis is um, is much more uh, versatile than just a just a static gun. I mean, you're kind of in every little helps territory here. Uh, Ukraine are not are not turning down correctly, not turning down offers of um, of modern um, towed artillery. They'd be crazy to do that. Um, but there are limitations. You've got to be very careful about where you sight it and and uh, and protect it in in other ways because it is it is much less easy to to um, get out of the way than than self propelled artillery. Thanks, Dom. And before we go on to talk about yachts and oligarchs and sanctions, uh, are there any other updates um, from from Ukraine and from from the conflict that we should mention? Yeah, just one. It's 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 kind of breaking news. Um, it's not quite news yet. It's still in sort of rumor control, but it's firming up. I'm seeing it from a number of different sources. Um, so uh, some of whom I have much greater trust in than, than others. But there is a suggestion that uh, the Russian Navy, a Grigorovich class frigate called the Admiral Makarov. Uh, there are reports that it is on fire south of Odessa in the Black Sea. I've also seen other reports that it's sunk, which is why I suggest, as, as I have done for weeks, you know, be careful where you get your information from and check check everything. But there's a suggestion that the um, that this large frigate is, has been under some kind of action. There are there seem to be multiple ships in the area, US drones in the area as well, taking a great interest in what in what's happening. The suggestions being that these are, are some kind of rescue effort from the from the ships, and the the US uh, is, is a key, taking a keen interest in what's happening. But that that will develop through the afternoon. But yeah, the suggestion that the Admiral Makarov, a Grigorovich class frigate, is uh, has been hit possibly by one of these um, shore-based Neptune missiles that uh, two, two of which 
hit and sunk the Moskva a couple of weeks ago. So that's just breaking news, one, one, to, one to keep an eye on. Thanks, Tom. Anything from you, Ben? Um, I think one thing that's kind of um, worth noting just regarding sanctions is that uh, last night it kind of came out that the EU plans to put um, Putin's rumoured girlfriend on the sanctions list. This is um, Alina Kabaeva, who um, is a former Olympic gymnast, um, carried the flag at uh, the Sochi Winter Olympic Games, which was obviously held by Russian, kind of turned into what was a very large kind of propaganda um, kind of exercise for for Putin, um, and also the Patriarch Kirill, who is head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, this is kind of again the expansion of um, kind of sanctions as as a political weapon, because I think there's there's an acknowledgement within a lot of quarters that, especially on the financial side, as we'll go into with yachts, that there's a very big difference between assets being freezed um, and assets being confiscated with freezed assets um, and kind of sanctioning people. It kind of makes their life for the moment very hard. Um, But actually confiscating and selling on those assets and kind of, as has been suggested by some kind of selling on kind of the yachts of um, or the mansions of kind of oligarchs and using that to rebuild Ukraine, that kind of requires quite a big kind of change in uh, kind of sanctions law, at least within the UK. And this is something that Biden has potentially been looking at in the US, according to some reports. Um, But this is kind of a new level of the kind of propaganda war on on Putin by kind of highlighting highlighting this. And this has been kind of appeared in the EU draft document. Um, And it'll be interesting, there was a newspaper that previously reported on this affair, which um, was vehemently denied by the Kremlin at the time, and then the newspaper subsequently shut down, such is the nature of Russia. Um, But this kind of, again, illustrates where the EU and where kind of Western nations are going with this, that it's it's not only a ploy to kind of tighten the economic affairs of Russia and and of oligarchs and of people supporting Putin, but also as, as a propaganda tool to kind of embarrass embarrass him as we've seen with the work of Alexei Navalny um, within Russia. Thanks very much Ben and thank you Dom. Well let's talk a little bit about oligarchs, yachts and sanctions. So there's two bits of news I think to to mention. One is that Fiji authorities have seized uh, the yacht of a sanctioned Russian oligarch that's Suleiman uh, Kirimov. Um, that's that's a story today and we've also heard that the, a, a giant yacht that allegedly belongs to Vladimir Putin is out of the dry dock in Italy and could be a, about to leave Italian uh, waters. Um, so oligarchs and their and their yachts and their assets have been a lot in the news a lot recently. It is important important to talk about them. So I guess the first question is Ben Gartside. Why do the Russian elite buy yachts? What's in it for them? So kind of there's multiple angles to this, and I think it's kind of it's it's worth remembering that there's the obvious point about mega yachts, which is they are very ostentatious, they are very opulent. It is a method of displaying your wealth among a group of people who have never proven shy at kind of being willing to do so. Um, it also kind of stems from kind of the, the Russian elite kind of owning coastal properties, whether that's in Sochi or, or kind of um, externally in kind of foreign countries. But if money is no issue to you, then why not have a boat to go with your kind of beachside mansion? Um, there's then the financial side of this, um, which is that yachts are fundamentally an asset. And kind of if you are someone who is looking to guise your wealth or, or kind of potentially diversify your wealth um, away from having it in a bank account, which could be expropriated via Western governments kind of looking to 
who see you as a puppet of Putin or Putin who's seeing you as increasingly disloyal, kind of having a hundred million pound vessel which can move from politically favourable waters to different politically favourable waters if those kind of political tides do change is kind of something that's that can be quite helpful. And um, according to statistics, around 10% of super yachts are actually owned by Russians, which may not seem too much on face value, but given the kind of comparative Russian GDP compared to the US or China, it actually shows that the kind of Russian demand for this is very oversized compared to compared to rival nations. Um, so it does kind of serve that multiple purpose. I mean, Roman Abramovich, who's obviously one of the most notorious oligarchs, um, especially in Britain, has five of these kind of mega yachts. Um, um, and they're worth around accumulatively $1 billion. So it's it's a very good way of kind of having your money outside of kind of bank accounts that can be expropriated, outside of companies that can be tracked and audited, um, and within kind of vehicles that are often owned by shell companies. Um, so it gives you that, to for lack of a better word, the privacy that perhaps you don't get by having your your bank account in kind of a sanctioned Russian bank or having money there. But so why is it so difficult for, for us, for the public, for journalists to discover who, who owns what? I mean, our story says, you know, this yacht, yacht allegedly belongs to Putin. Um, can you give us a sense of, of why it's so difficult to find out who really owns these things? Sure. So it's it's worth saying kind of this is this is a topic I've I've covered a reasonable amount and um, on a day-to-day basis I'm a property reporter and you have a lot of the same issues is that there are entire kind of economic sy- systems set up in a lot of kind of uh, tax havens or or just generally that make it very, very easy to guise where the true ownership of, of something is. So for example, one of these um, Putin's um, yachts that, that has kind of allegedly been found um, it's under the flag of the Cayman Islands, and it's owned by a company called Bialor Asset Limited, which is a anonymous entity ref, um, registered in the Marshall Islands. Now, from that, these two con- countries, kind of Cayman Islands and Marshall Islands, have very poor um, kind of disclosure. They're not known as being transparent areas. Um, and a lot of time, therefore, to kind of ID them as, as Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition um, kind of leader, has done... You actually need to do it kind of in a in a lot more of an indirect way. The way that Navalny has kind of ID'd this yacht, um, which I believe is in Italy, is by looking at the staff members and proving that a lot of them are members of the federal state security services. So basically, presidential um, presidential security. Um, and you you it's it's very hard to hard to track this again with the Black Sea mansion um, that Putin allegedly owns. It wasn't by looking at the financial documents due to the, how opaque they are. It was actually done by um, looking at that there was a no-fly zone instituted around the property and there was equally um, an FSB branch just around the corner. So it had a heightened level of security that made it easier to ID as opposed to through the financial measures. And this means that there's actually quite a lot of problems for Western governments trying to prove this. I mean, there's some yachts that have been investigated since the back end of March where governments are merely just trying to prove who actually owns it and therefore having logic towards impounding it or kind of sanctioning it or not letting it exit the port. And it it proves very, very hard because of the fact that you have... It's not just one shell company, often it's three, four, five, six, seven. Um, and it just makes it very, very hard for Western governments to actually prove this. And if we are looking at the confiscation side of it, so not just freezing this yacht saying you can't go anywhere... We believe that 
this is subject to kind of illicitly gained wealth is that if you do try and prosecute or if you do try and bring up um, kind of criminal related charges from this it's virtually impossible to kind of bring anything through because you have the issue of in order to prove that this money which has bounced around the globe has been ascertained in a, in a method that is illegal a lot of the time you need to go back to where this money was first got which is Russia um, and half the time this has been done in kind of a kleptocratic nature which means that governments have turned a blind eye or actually willingly been involved in kind of the the kind of robbery of this money or, or how this money has been ascertained um, which means that it, it's virtually impossible to get criminal sanctions on it which is why this appears so hard you're seeing a lot of yachts not be able to leave ports or or not re- receiving permission to leave ports but the actual next step of kind of uh, confiscating them and selling them on is is proving very very hard so for oligarchs they're to some extent a, a show of wealth to some extent financial protection and they're spreading their wealth around the world as you've said um well now countries are, are trying to confisc- confiscate them across the globe what what impact does this have on the oligarchs and what are their options now um, for the oligarchs, um, at the moment, I think it's important to draw a definition between confiscation and, and, and freezing them. Um, freezing them means keeping them in a port, kind of not giving them approval to, to kind of leave. Um, and, and kind of confiscation means physically HMRC, the kind of British tax inspectorate, who's um, responsible for a lot of sanctions. Um, that means confiscation means physically getting them, selling them on and the government having that money and doing with so and um, as so with what it wishes. Um, what's more likely in the case of these yachts and in regard of um, kind of sanctions more generally in the UK is that they will just stay frozen for a very, very long time, which means that the UK government can't do anything with them, really. Um, the oligarchs are frozen, they can't get access to them. And it will just be an incredibly long and protracted battle where um, it kind of stays in this middle ground where the UK government can't repatriate them and send that money to Ukraine to help rebuild it. But equally, the oligarchs can't get their their hands back on it. Um, in the UK, there has been talk. Michael Gove has sought to kind of use uh, Russian mansions and Russian-owned property to house Ukrainian refugees, um, which kind of creates quite a tough legal bar. Um, this is something that Joe Biden has been looking at in the US because I think there's been an acknowledgement of Western world leaders that the bar to actual confiscation, especially in the way that a lot of these vehicles are structured that own these boats, it's never a little piece of paper signed by Roman Abramovich in a transparent location. It is multiple shell companies or in the case of Roman Abramovich, um, it's owned by friends or allies. So um, David Davidovich um, is the named owner of multiple of his yachts and kind of goods um and he is someone who is just a russian businessman he's now been sanctioned by the uk via being an ally and kind of um of roman abramovich and by accession putin um but there is there is this issue and while this is very annoying for russian oligarchs at the moment the actual meaningful kind of impact long term of what can be done with it um, that kind of remains to be seen and may need new legislation I guess my final question is, how have, have these sanctions and how has this um, uh, this action on, on oligarchs, how has it impacted the Western financial system? So it's, it's quite interesting because I think when you kind of read, read about um, 
tax havens, it's, it's always seen as very separate, kind of the stories of Mossack Fonseca and, and kind of on kind of the big screen in terms of the laundromat, the Helen Mirren film that looked into a lot of this. Um, it's often treated as very, very separate to kind of everyday finance when, when that often isn't quite true. Um, if you look at what's happened in the FT, um, FT's coverage of this um, recently, um, uh, there is kind of a good example of they've actually been selling loans um, loans on this. Uh, so they've got around two, £2 billion worth of loans for kind of very high net worth individuals and luxury toys is literally a word used on one of the bro- um, brochures regarding this, which basically is then kind of loaning money to oligarchs to help buy these, these purchases. Credit Suisse are now in quite a lot of hot water because they've got a significant number of assets which are, um, which are now sanctioned, um, which means they're losing a lot of money because those oligarchs can no longer pay for these loans. They can no longer facilitate that, um, which has caused consternation in Credit Suisse. There was a similar issue in 2017 where one third of the defaults on these loans was caused indirectly by Russian um, by sanctions, um, according to internal documents that have subsequently been leaked. Um, so kind of the impact on Western finance, I think, is still ca- will come out and kind of especially Western banks, because I think there's there's a lot of kind of wringing of hands regarding the direct role when a lot of the time these are banks that you've kind of heard of every day and kind of who are directly involved rather than shell companies and things that are very, very departed from from everyday life. Thanks, Ben. Um Tom, you've been listening to all of this. Um, do you have any questions or any, any thoughts, anything to add to what um, Ben's been saying? Uh, well, I certainly won't be able to add anything. That that really would be um, expecting my A-level economics to do some heavy lifting. It's not ready for. But but Ben, I'm really interested to ask the the yachts as a uh, yachts and super, you know, supercars, high net worth, all this kind of stuff, targeting the oligarchs as a means of putting pressure on the system, putting pressure on the people around Putin to say that there are consequences for keeping this system alive and also hoping that, that they would then sort of turn around to him and say, look, mate, you've, you've got to sort of dial it down a bit or it's time to go or, or anything like that. If we, if we uh, broaden this out a bit and look at pressure... That might be one that, that the West might want to bring to bear on China if there were any any um, actions against Taiwan. Is there an equivalent of 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 going after Russian oligarchs and super yachts um, in the Chinese model? Because I I'm 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 weak on this and I don't know what the how the power structures work around Xi Jinping. But I, I wonder is it is it so nested in individuals? Is there a way of getting to him through the kind of you know the equivalent of oligarchs and yachts basically? So it's a really interesting question, and this is something that's been raised by Hong Kong activists previously because there's a significant amount of property owned in central London by kind of um, Chinese Chinese businessmen and kind of Chinese politicians. There was a recent report out by Hong Kong Watch, uh, the advisory group, that actually pointed to a number of um, kind of uh, legislators who have property in London which could be sanctioned given kind of the the issues that have gone on in Hong Kong and the removal of democracy there. Um, so it's, it's, an, it's an active discussion. I think one thing that is, is worth noting is that for every time that kind of we view this as, oh, these are Russians supporting Putin or kind of um, Chinese Communist Party members supporting Xi Jinping, there is the cross side of this, which is 
a lot of the time, if you look at these transactions, and I've covered kind of Chinese property a lot, is that a lot of the reasons behind this or that is justification by given by a lot of people who kind of buy up these properties at, at significantly high values, as, as individuals, it's worth saying, is that owning 40 million, a kind of £40 million property in London, say, and having that in the Caymans Islands bank account is a hell of a lot safer than having it a hundred million pounds in a Chinese bank account if you are then seen to be disloyal um, to the leader or and, and the same applies to Russia that a lot of people are willing to pay over the odds for property or assets that are seen as relatively untouchable in the West um, in case there is kind of a change of regime or they are no longer in the inner circle um, so while this could be sanctioned I think there's a lot of reticence within some corners towards kind of taking this aggressive approach because sometimes it's actually indirectly seen as oh this person actually might be might be on side a little or kind of it's it's often senior figures hedging in a way um and it, it's worth saying that a lot of these deals especially on that regard are people that aren't public it's people who've who've as we were kind of discussing earlier have cloaked it in numerous shell accounts in numerous different domains um but but it's an interesting question, and I think it's somewhere where movement will be expected because there has been it's been greatly documented in books like Kleptopia by Tom Burgess um, and Oliver Bullough, a journalist at the FT, who've kind of gone and they've pointed out that a significant amount of cash inflow from these countries have come since 2010, and we've not really looked at how as a country how we can do this. There was an attempt to bring in a beneficial owners list in terms of property that seem to have now been dropped but it's a very active discussion and MPs especially who are hawkish on China or Russia including Tom Tugendhat and Bob Seeley are definitely this is on their radar and this is something that's definitely going to be considered more in kind of the years to come not less. Thanks Ben thanks Dom. Um, Ben is there anything else we should discuss anything else you want to mention about oligarchs yachts and their wealth that we haven't yet talked about? I think one thing to discuss that's that's quite interesting is just where does this go next? Because there's been a lot of coverage of yachts and kind of yachts are really interesting in terms of their opulence and and kind of it's it's always kind of quite humorous to see a, a yacht being impounded due to the kind of how how open they are about the wealth and they despite they may be owned by loads of sanctioned individuals or or kind of via loads of shell companies, but it's very obvious if an a hundred million pound lot yacht pulls into Canary Wharf that that is an incredibly expensive boat and that's someone who's who's not willing to hide about that. Um, but where this goes next, I think, is quite interesting in terms of um, property could potentially be targeted. There's been kind of more civilian action regarding property. Um, but we will kind of wait to see with that. But I think there's definitely going to be a, a broadening of how we look at this issue going forward. And there's going to be a lot of work for kind of regulators, including the Department of Justice, who led the Fiji um, blocking of the yacht, which you mentioned earlier, David, and, and HMRC and the Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation in the UK, um, because there's, there's a lot out there. And, and the approach of the regulators and kind of the enforcers will be, will be really interesting in the months to come. Thank you very much, Ben. I thought that was um, greatly in-depth. And so thanks, thanks for your time. Um, just to say for anybody listening, if you've got questions, please do let us know. Do DM us. We'll try and get your questions um, and answer them live or we'll put them into a future podcast. Um, 
Well, I guess it's only left for me to say what um, other things we should be looking out for over the weekend and in the next week from this conflict and in, and in an economic sense. Um, Dom Nichols, we know it's, uh, May, May the 9th is approaching. How are we covering it? So May the 9th, crikey, it, it better come up with something after the billing we've, we've all give, been giving it. So Monday is the Victory Day Parade in Moscow. It starts at 8am uh, London time, so 11 o'clock uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, Moscow time. Uh, we're going to be covering it here at The Telegraph. We're going to be live streaming on YouTube and our website. Uh, Theo Merz, who, who's often on this on this uh, Twitter space and this podcast, Theo, our assistant foreign editor, he, he and I are going to be chatting, watching the, watching the parade, uh, and not just sort of, well, trying not to give a boring commentary of, of all the vehicles we're seeing, but, but what does it mean? And Theo, who used to live and work in, in Russia. Uh, he's a fluent Russian speaker. He, so when, when Putin and anyone else gives their speech, he's going to be able to sort of give us an idea of, of what's being said. Because for all the talk over re- recent weeks, I mean, May the 9th is significant um, because, of, because of what it stands for and, and the opportunity it gives Putin to, to, uh, to, to speak to the world, basically, uh, and, and possibly more importantly, speak to Russian domestic society so it's going to be a biggie we are going to uh, cover it uh, live as i said on our website and on youtube and then it will probably feature i imagine it will feature in monday's uh, space and, and potty but no may the 9th will be will be significant yeah all, all daft daftness aside thanks tom and ben would you like the last words so just um just in terms of uh, financial kind of the side of it and, and the business side. I think what's really going to appear in the next next few months is kind of just looking at, at kind of that economic kind of side of it, and especially how we consider it in Britain. We're going to see more fuel price rises um, later this year, and kind of potential impacts from from the food side, as we mentioned earlier, with the grain. It's going to be really interesting, especially given in that light, what are we going to do about sanctions and how are we going to use that money? There's been calls from the Ukrainian side and also kind of activists in in Belarus and kind of pro-democracy activists in the entire region for that money to go towards rebuilding Ukraine. But currently kind of our legislation and international law isn't isn't necessarily conducive to that. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting going forward. And then obviously, as, as, as Dom says, there's the May 9th rally, which is, is going to really impact where this conflict goes forward. And I think is going to impact a lot of markets. And there's going to be there's a lot of people who have, have invested money in Russia or who are investing money in fossil fuels who are looking at this rally. And it will really indicate, is the UK going to go into recession? What is the mindset of Vladimir Putin? And it will have a lot of knock-on effects that are outside of this conflict directly, but have kind of huge impacts on, on society at large. So that would be kind of my thing to watch going forward. Ukraine the latest, we've been keen to hear how the war is understood across the world. So yesterday I called Rosina Sabor, the Telegraph's Washington correspondent, to understand the American response to the conflict. We spoke about Joe Biden, the GOP, and how, for ordinary Americans, the war is fast becoming a question of living standards. What's the general view of the war in in the US? I would say it depends who you ask. Um, Certainly at the beginning of the conflict, it was very pervasive across the US media and it cut through to the average American in a way that foreign news actually rarely does here. Um, And, you know, if you look at the polls, it suggested that Americans were 
very engaged with the crisis, sympathetic to, you know, the plight of Ukrainians and and supportive of, you know, America's hardline stance on Russia. Um, and definitely, you know, anecdotally, when I interview people in different parts of the country about various different things, you know, it was an issue that was clearly front of mind and, and raised regularly. But I think what we're seeing now is as the war drags on, I think the position has shifted slightly. So, you know, America's cable news networks, you know, CNN, MSNBC, even Fox, you know, continue to extensively feature the war. And in Washington, where I'm based, you know, the average person is obviously very politically engaged. Um, It continues to be a frequent topic of conversation. But I would say that for the average American, the story of the war has mutated into a story of higher living costs and rising interest rates and you know, so that the war is now having a real impact on the lives of Americans, most notably in the high cost of petrol. And I would say that is where most people's focus is now. You know, this has really come to bite on, you know, on the average American's wallet. Is that is that changing how sympathetic Americans are towards Ukrainians? No, I don't think it's a question of sympathy. I think the question is... You know, it's, it's now a political question um, where, you know, just a few months out from the midterm elections, which happen early November, and they will decide control of Congress for the next two years. Um, it's widely expected that the Democrats will do badly. Um, that's pretty much in keeping with, you know, American political tradition where the party in power is punished at the midterms. Um, but the question is, how does that affect Joe Biden and the Democrats and, 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 you know, their handling of the situation. So we've seen quite a, an unusual level of bipartisan support for the war. Um, Republicans in Congress have really got behind, you know, the massive spending packages that Joe Biden has requested for, you know, military aid and, and other assistance to Ukraine. So definitely, you know, on a, on a moral level, most Americans would feel, you know, that there is a, a very real ideological support for, you know, what with the conflict in Ukraine and for America's position. What's changed is now that it is really impacting the cost of living, what is Joe Biden doing about it? So that then impacts that you, you're now hearing Republican criticism of, you know, Joe Biden's environmental policies and and this, you know, call to end drilling, reduce the amount of oil that America is producing. Obviously, Joe Biden has, you know, slightly reversed his position on, on a lot of those issues since the war began to, to ease the supply um, crisis and to try and bring the cost of oil down. It's issues like, like that which are, are sort of changing the assessment slightly. I would say, you know, the average American is still very supportive of Ukrainians. You know, there's a lot of admiration for how President Vladimir Zelensky has handled the situation. But how is Joe Biden, you know, bringing the cost of fuel down? It's, it's, it's the, those sorts of questions that are now really top of mind for most Americans. So let's talk about Biden a little bit more. What's what's he been doing in this conflict and how has his actions been perceived by, by the American public? 
Yeah, again, I think it's a two-part story. I think, again, the polling suggests that the average American feels that Joe Biden has handled the crisis very well. The White House have been very proactive in their messaging. So even before the war began, we saw Jen Psaki, who's Joe Biden's press secretary, preempting Russia's moves, preempting the possibility of false flag operations. So they've really got ahead of the crisis um, and, and let it be seen as Putin's actions rather than Biden's inaction. Um, so in terms of uniting Europe, getting you know the EU behind him on a lot of his positions in terms of sanctions and, and all the rest of it, I think the average American thinks he's done very well. But where the focus is now is, well, what is he doing to lower the cost of living? One interesting, I think, from a certainly a European perspective is obviously looking at US media. Um, it's not all pro-Ukraine. There's, there's quite a few, well, I'm thinking specifically of Tucker Carlson and his show, which has huge reach, um, which adopts a much more pro-Russia opinion. Um, could you talk a little bit about that for our, for our European listeners? How has this come about and how, how does it go down? Does, it, does he have much influence? Yes. So I would put that in the context of four years of Donald Trump's presidency. So that had a, a, a quite a, a significant impact on how a faction of the GOP views Russia and foreign policy more generally. It's, you know, people who were extremely hawkish on Russia before have now become actually much more sympathetic in part because of the claims that Russia meddled in the 2016 election, meddled in 2020, um, you know, sensibly to boost Donald Trump and to help keep Hillary Clinton out of office. There is a faction within the GOP that does not subscribe to that view that is has as a result become more friendly to Russia. And there's also the fact that there, there has always been this wing that is non-interventionist, very much not wanting to engage US troops in any conflict in Europe. So that's always been an element that's become more pronounced under Donald Trump. Um, But what I would say, you know, Tucker Carlson, you mentioned, is obviously one of Fox News's most well-known anchors. A few million Americans tune into his show every night. So it's not insignificant. But I would put it in the context of a GOP that is broadly supportive of the war, broadly supportive of what Joe Biden is doing. Actually, some would would advocate for an even more hardline stance. You know, we've seen some Republicans come out and say there should be a no-fly zone in place and that the US should be enforcing it. So, yes, there is that element of... um, of Republican politics, but I, w- I wouldn't overemphasize it because I think the mainstream Republican Party is is behind the U.S. position on the war and would actually, in some instances, advocate for for more intervention, not less. I mean, this isn't supposed to sound cynical, but I'm, I'm sure it does. But do you think that the war potentially has, I don't know how, quite how to put it, but it it smoked out slightly the more, one might say, extreme end of the GOP, the sort of pro-Russia end, because of, of all the because of the American population falling in behind in support of Ukraine. Um, 
it's become more difficult potentially for the for the more extreme your Tucker Carlson's uh, to some extent your Donald Trump's to 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 maintain their support in the, in the light of what we know that the Russian army is doing in, in Ukraine is is that fair? I would say the question isn't so much has it smoked them out is are are you know people who would once not get the airtime that they are now getting as a result of maybe their support for Trump or you know being given a, a larger platform by Trump and the MAGA base there has always been a small wing of the party that has has felt this way i think maybe it's become more pronounced post 2016 with you know the us broadly becoming more hostile to Russia as a result of the election interference. And this is, you know, maybe partly a response to that. Um, but on Donald Trump himself, what's interesting is, A, if you ask Donald Trump, the first thing he would tell you is this war would not be happening if he were still in the White House. You know, he's repeatedly said that Vladimir Putin would have feared crossing him in a way that he does not fear Joe Biden. It's hard to say how much truth there is to that, but certainly there is a feeling among many Republicans that this war would not have happened if Trump was president. And actually, we've also seen Trump responding to public sentiment and shifting his tone slightly. So, you know, at the beginning of the conflict, he was repeating his familiar praise of Putin, calling him a genius and praising his strongman leadership and but that has shifted slightly um, in response to public criticism so I saw him deliver a speech at at CPAC which is you know the the kind of marquee political event in the GOP calendar Um, and that was back in February and, and he struck a very different tone there he was actually quite critical of Putin um supportive of Ukraine and praising Ukraine praising Vladimir Zelensky particularly So we have seen even Donald Trump's rhetoric shift slightly on this. And I would just caution against um, overstating the influence of the the pro-Russia wing of the Republican Party. You've talked about Trump. Could we flip back to Biden? Because obviously one of the GOP attack lines on Biden, you know, Trump calls him Sleepy Joe, thinks he's slow to react to things and out of step. Um, how how vigorous has he been in this crisis? Has it has he discuss, has this helped him discover um, an answer to that criticism? Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at polling, so obviously we've seen a massive decline in Joe Biden's approval ratings, and that really dates back to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last August. And since then, you know, it's really declined, and he hasn't really been able to resurrect the early support that he had. The drop has actually, just a a side note, been actually sharpest among Democrats who voted for him, which is quite interesting. You know, going along with that, when you look at how he's handled Ukraine, actually, Americans are broadly supportive of of what he's done. So it's interesting that on the one hand, he's largely been seen to have done a good job on Ukraine, but that hasn't translated into necessarily a, a significant bump in his approval ratings. Obviously, there have been a few blunders, you know, obviously appearing to suggest that a minor incursion into Ukraine by Russia wouldn't trigger much of a response from the US. You know, that kind of, you know, that overshadowed his um, press conference earlier this year with the White House press corps. And then we saw, again, a hugely successful trip to Europe quite recently, which was then overshadowed by appearing to call for regime change at the end of what was an otherwise very well-received 
speech and you know again these these missteps have overshadowed what has largely been a successful response from from Joe Biden but I would again you know when when that when when Joe Biden called for a regime change or appeared sorry appeared to call for regime change that was you know the talk of Washington but how much that cuts through to the average American you know is is up for debate I suppose when we think about the aid that Biden's delivered, when we think about what he's done in terms of, you know, taking quite a measured approach in in protecting US interests on the one hand, but taking a hardline stance on Russia on the other, I think he's he's managed to navigate that quite well, I think the average person would say. Um, and, you know, managed to keep the US at arm's length from the conflict by and large in terms of put down a, a firm red line in terms of not send, not committing to sending U.S. troops to Ukraine, very much stating that the U.S. will not go into direct conflict with Russia. Uh, earlier on, I thought I thought in this conversation you said you, you cautioned us as not from the U.S. not to overstate the that you, you know uh, the Tucker Carlson's and that sort of pro-Trump element in in GOP and GOP associated sort of media. Um, are there any other things you'd really want our listeners to understand um, about? American attitudes or actions in this war that potentially aren't obvious unless unless you're there. One thing that um, Brits won't necessarily be too aware of is this kind of secretive team of national security advisors who have spent months and months game planning different scenarios for how the war could unfold. Um, and they've been dubbed the Tiger Team. So they hold these classified meetings about three times a week to try and test out various different scenarios and how they would unfold. So, for example, you know, they've taken a situation and anticipated, you know, the three or five ways or whatever that Putin could respond. And they've role played how each of those three or five scenarios would end. Some of them are subject matter experts. They've, you know, looked at the possibilities, for example, of Putin launching um, a chemical, biological or nuclear attack. We don't hear a lot about them. We don't know a huge amount about who they all are, but they've been instrumental to how the US has responded to this crisis. Ultimately, do you think it will benefit Joe Biden or, or, or will the cost of the impact of things like cost of living benefit the Republicans? Um, I think that remains to be seen, but I would say as of right now, the Republicans are winning the messaging on the cost of living Um you know, we've seen these efforts by the White House to to label it Putin's gas hike and Putin's cost of living rise or whatever, um, very much trying to pin the blame on Putin. But that's not proved hugely successful so far. And when the average American goes to a petrol station to fill up their car and they're paying significantly more under Joe Biden than they were under Donald Trump, do they look too much into you know, the nuances behind the global economy, or do they, you know, look at the man in charge and think you're not doing a good enough job? Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.